Welcome to The Future of Legal Gender, a short series podcast for the Feminist and Critical Law Reform Project, funded by the ESRC. In this podcast series, we explore what might happen if a state no longer certified sex or gender at birth. My name is Dr Jessica Smith, and in this episode I am joined by Dr Flora Renz, a senior lecturer at the University of Kent and a co-investigator on the project. In this episode, we discuss how single-sex spaces could operate if sex and gender were no longer formal aspects of legal personhood. And we also discuss the broader challenges and opportunities of decertifying legal gender. Our project explores what might happen if a state withdrew from formally recording sex and gender at birth, which is what we're calling decertification. What came out of your research then on how uh, single sex spaces could be regulated in conditions of decertification? So it's a really funny one because partially we were looking at these spaces because we thought, okay, that's where the most acute problems are going to be if you no longer have a legal status, because these are the spaces that rely currently on a legal definition of what it means to be this kind of space. Um, they seem to have the strictest sort of issues around this. They, they're actively trying to exclude other people, so they need to have a clear definition. The funny thing is you could operate all of these spaces without having a legal status in lots of ways because they're not really using a legal status at the moment um, in the really strict sense, which is why some people want to insist on calling them single gender services because they see this as different from kind of the legal definition. Um, so in principle, you could have a model of decertification that says, yeah, everything carries on as normal, um, just do what you want. Um, in practice, there are kind of sort of different ends of the scale, I, I think you could imagine. So one would be, of course, to say, we're going to remove legal gender status and therefore none of these services should exist. Um, so to say, we want to reduce kind of the relevance of gender and one way of doing that might be to remove instances where we segregate by gender. However, I think from sort of the project uh, perspective that we've been taking, that to me doesn't seem like the best answer because of course the services particularly we've looked at uh, exist to address gender inequality. So while gender inequality persists, there is a reason for these services to be there. So perhaps a better way of um, dealing with them sort of even just looking at the Equality Act might be to say, all kind of spaces that want to segregate by gender in some way um, can do so as long as there is an inequality basis of, on which to do this. So as long as there is kind of inequality around a specific gender, it doesn't have to be necessarily women. You could have the same rule around men in specific areas, or you could have it around non-binary people or agender people to say, okay, this is a group that's disproportionately affected by this in, in one specific setting, could be around violence, education, all sorts of things, of course. Therefore, there is a need to have a specific service for this group, just like we do it for all kinds of other things. Um, there's housing associations that cater to specific religious groups because they're disproportionately affected by homelessness, for instance. We could have exactly the same principle. However, then the tricky thing becomes, okay, we don't have a legal status, so that's out as a definition. It's not used that explicitly anyway, but you could argue, okay, implicitly, that's what people are talking about when they say we're single sex service or we're women's only service. Implicitly, they mean you're legally female. If that doesn't exist anymore, services have to come up with a different definition. And of course, that's how lots of characteristics operate right now, right? There's no single definition of what it means to be um, black. Um, same with religion. Uh, even within one religion, you can't come up with one single definition. Like what a Christian is can look very different in different contexts, never mind in different countries. So we could say, okay, the same thing should apply to gender. Um, 
each group can come up with their own definition of what this looks like. It can't refer to legal status because that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but we may still want to impose some limits on it. So perhaps one group wants to have kind of the definition most domestic violence service use right now, which is sort of focusing on socialization, structural accounts. Are you experiencing violence because you are perceived as a woman, for instance? Um, great, they can use that. Um, and I should note, this might well include trans men, for instance, who don't pass or non-binary people who are perceived as female would be ex experiencing violence in exactly the same way. But as long as that's a workable definition for them, fine. Um, but the state may well have an interest in saying, okay, but some definitions are not allowed. So for instance, anything that's particularly invasive, um, you can't say, yes, you're welcome to attend this all girls schools, but uh, we demand proof of what your body looks like at birth, because that would be um, impossible to operationalize and not something that applies so much with the other protected characteristics, which are not as intimate in the same way. Um, and similarly, the state might say, okay, we give more leniency to groups that um, are tackling minority issues. So to say, okay, this group um, that is trying to address gender-based violence, for instance, should have a greater scope to define what they mean by what it means to be this gender um, than this other group, which is running a hiking group for, I don't know, um, men over 65 or something. They're not addressing an inequality issue, therefore they have a, a more constrained definition of what this means. Um, or you can tie it to funding, which is what's happening um, in lots of countries to say, if you're receiving state funding, you have to abide by this set of definitions. If you're not receiving state funding, you can have whatever definition you like. Um, it doesn't matter to us. We're not funding this or the taxpayers and funding this. So all of these would be things that could emerge. So it would be, so one model of doing decertification would be to kind of move to, um, move to, to less of a kind of standardized level uh, but to move to an ad hoc, well, not, well, ad hoc has negative connotations, perhaps, and that perhaps that's something to discuss, but something which is much more fluid and contingent on the specific place, service, community, aim, um, and whether it's dealing with gender inequalities and other inequalities. Um, yeah, and I mean, like you say, sort of ad hoc has sort of a bad reputation, but there is a good argument for saying, well, inequality changes over time, right? It's not always static. Um, so maybe we shouldn't have the same definition all the time. Uh, we can use sort of the example that from a context we're both familiar with. Uh, law students are now predominantly female. Uh, most law schools will have two thirds women and one third men. Um, so there you might have an argument for saying, well, actually here having a group to then set up a, uh, I don't know, a mentoring program for female law students wouldn't really make sense on equality grounds because actually they're doing quite well overall. Although of course statistics tell us that changes once you get into sort of qualification, you become a solicitor, a barrister, a judge, there the gender dynamics change quite quickly, but they, there has been change. This, this has happened over the last 10, 15 years um, that we had a shift in that gender balance where previously this was a male dominated subject, which is why barristers and judges are still uh, male dominated professions. Yeah, because it's, as you say, it's the going up into the higher echelons of the career, isn't it? It's that sort of thing that you get stuck, like, although women are slightly, or female students slightly higher, it's, you know, when you, when you become a professor, or when you become a, you know, a top barrister, or a partner in a firm or something. Um, so I guess it's that temporality, as well as the spatial element of kind of, Going back to what we we're saying about, you know, single sex schools, 
around the idea that schools want to intervene to kind of help students grow and there's that element of it's not just about this fixing of kind of who you are now it's like helping you to kind of get to where you want to be yeah exactly um so it's in that sort of temporal dimension is of course really hard to build into a very fixed legal framework so if all we have is sort of to go on as legal status that may not actually sort of very accurately reflect social conditions in a way decertification might give us a chance to sort of think more about this in more fluid terms and that's not to say that we should disregard sort of big um, statistically evidenced inequalities, but to say, actually, we need to be more nuanced about how we're trying to address this. And of course, there's always these debates around now about whether or not white working class boys are disadvantaged in education um, and why is no one doing anything to help them? Whereas, of course, the issue is, I think, class more generally in that setting um, is that working class people are disadvantaged in education. Mm. But that's not a protected characteristic at all, right? So that's not something we're protecting at the moment. Um, so in, in some ways, decertification might also mean having to look at this more broadly. So be, thinking beyond gender, because of course, gender is only one of the things um, that makes our lives unequal in some instances. Yeah, and it's so much shaped by place as well. You know, we, we as I said, you know, at one point we were talking about single sex spaces, but, you know, to go to the example of, you know, um, white working class boys and stuff, if you look at coastal environments, forgotten towns, um, you know, places, northern uh, environments where industri industry has, you know, gone, um, leaving unequal sort of employment opportunities, um, that so much of it, so much of sort of single sex provision, I guess, as well, is, is, is place bound. There are whole counties where you'll find only one single, and it will be a fee paying school. So I I guess it's needed to have this more ad hoc system or fluid system that takes into account these different place differences. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's, of course, also a question around provision more generally. So is it, you know, it might well be permissible to have a single sex school somewhere that has fairly strict, like a fairly strict definition of what it means to be a girl, if there's lots of other schools available that someone could go to, whereas if that's the only school that's available, um, there, there is a question there whether or not the state should intervene and say, well, actually, no, you can't exclude lots of people because there isn't any alternative provision available, right? So there is a there is a really key context question there. And like you say, it's really about place because, you know, in a city, it's all well and good if there's 20 other schools within this sort of the same rough commuting radius. Um, but if you're in a rural area, there, there likely won't be any other schools um, anywhere close to you. Um, so admittedly sort of just saying, okay, this is for people who are identified as female at birth um, is quite a crude tool to tackle inequality in lots of ways. And in some instances, it may not be tackling inequality at all because that isn't the thing that shapes inequality. If there's no jobs at all, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess, you know, you could go into the whole, you know, uh, the, the, all the work that's been done around, I know we were talking about law schools, weren't we? Gen, seemingly gendered professions, getting girls into STEM subjects has been a big, big drive, isn't it? Um, so those kind of more, for those things that schools are perhaps more and more attentive to now and how they function. Um, yeah, and of course, those aren't sort of legally regulated things at all so often. And that's partially, I think, why schools feel they need to go beyond the Equality Act mm -hmm. is because the things that they're actually trying to tackle aren't really legal issues as such. They're about kind of 
what we often talk about as personal choice, but is of course heavily constrained by social factors. And how do you get the law to tackle the fact that, I don't know, TV only shows male engineers, for instance, or um, the fact that, you know, toy stores sell nurses outfits for girls in the pink aisle and doctors outfits for boys in the blue aisle. Um, there are things you can do with law, but it's quite difficult. Like partially it's about sort of social change and that's kind of what we've been trying to sort of reflect a bit in sort of thinking about decertification as a future proposal is kind of what other factors need to be in place for this to be a workable proposal or what what do we actually want to change? So it's because we're not doing a libertarian project where we're just saying, okay, we're removing state regulation, uh, the free market will sort itself out. Uh, that's not the approach we're taking. So what we're looking at is sort of how do we achieve greater equality? And that often means sort of having to make sure that there's enough state funding available for things, um, making sure that other kinds of inequalities can't sort of overtake this, um, making sure that things can change over time to reflect how things have changed um, as we've gone along. Um, in lots of regards, I mean, religion in this country used to be quite different to how it plays out now, you could argue that there was a reason to protect Catholics, for instance, because they're experiencing discrimination. Is that so relevant now? I, I don't know, probably not so much. Um, so yeah, there's so much flux in these things and it's quite hard to just use law as a sort of really blunt instrument to say, here's the problem, here's what it should be like and we leave it like this now for the next 50 years and somehow this will resolve it. Um, often doesn't work like that really. Yeah, it's so it's firstly recognizing that law isn't the only um, tool, it isn't the only thing. Um, you know, we also have these social um, factors that kind of can lead to um, addressing gender inequality. And then it's sort of also backwards mapping, in a sense, I guess, the project of kind of imagining what future we might want um, for gender and then backwards mapping, well, what would we need to get in that place? And then I guess, thirdly, it's also like, um, is that the problem in general with law, that temporality thing of, um, you know, does does law just kind of wait for the right conditions and then put something in place? And then that's taken, you know, however long to get on the table. So we'll just leave it like that, even if it's not quite perfect. And then we'll just wait another, you know, rather than being maybe, is, is it possible to make law future orientated? Yeah, and also how would you future-proof law? So one of the things we've been thinking about around inequality and putting these single-sex services to say, well, okay, you can have single-sex services, but they would need to be reviewed for instance, every five to 10 years to say, is this still actually tackling a need that exists or does this now need have situation, has, has the situation on the ground changed so much that this is no longer actually tackling anything and you're actually just helping people who are already privileged, for instance. Um, so those kinds of things so that perhaps, and some laws do have that, they have kind of a review mechanism built in or they have specific time-based clauses that trigger at a certain point. Uh, Women-only shortlists are one example of those. I think they're expiring this year, need to be renewed. Um, because funnily enough, uh, sort of parliamentarians haven't changed too much on sort of gender um, balance uh, concerns, I think. We probably still need them, fair enough, um, but should we build more law that looks like that? So that really does take into account the fact that these are temporal and often by the time you've passed a law, it's been sort of five years after the issue that you really want to tackle has emerged. Um, it's because the practicalities of making law, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and the problem, problem, problems of publishing anything, any legal, do, any document, is that it's always backwards looking. Um, yeah, and you're always sort of addressing something. Something has come to your attention because of some problem, and then you're dealing with that problem. Whereas this is, I guess, maybe looking, looking more at like future, as a way of shifting from the kind of, you know, that that model which makes us look at the, the problems now. 
it's it's taking those into account but then also as you were saying like future proofing it yeah and I mean that's not to say that sort of we should ignore sort of really long-standing trends like gender inequality for women because of course you know has a really long historical precedent um has become really embedded but of course it's also nuanced by things like class people always talk about how sort of women only entered the workplace um kind of after world war one but of course that's really different if you look at different class levels working class women have always entered the workplace um because they didn't have a choice but it's also to say, you know, but some things will change and have changed, you know, within our lifetimes, so many things have changed around inequality. Um, Same-sex marriage was unimaginable when I was a child, and now it's a perfectly acceptable thing that happens all the time. Um, I see so many wedding features now featuring same-sex couples that it's a completely normal thing. Mm. So some things will change around gender inequality too, and partially that maybe the emergence of other minority genders. So right now we're not addressing at all what happens to non-binary people or agender people. And these are definitely groups that are emerging and that exist. So we should have some provision for them, but currently that isn't really embedded very well in the law, um, simply because the law didn't consider those, um, partially because the Equality Act just amalgamated a whole bunch of different pre-existing laws that in some cases weren't terribly up to date to begin with. Yeah. And, and even in, so like I went to a mixed, mixed school, mixed state school, even that, that was definitely not gender neutral. I remember sort of one, I think it was PSHE class where you, or it might've been, it was, you know, when you sort of, there's little breaks between lessons where you just got to do so. So we got designed with sort of planning out what our, what our, what our wedding would look like. <laughs> and we had to draw on, on a piece of, and it was just bizarre. Um, <laughs> And, you, and I can't remember what, what lesson it was connected to. It probably would have had to have been PSHE because it was deeply unrelevant to anything else. Uh, and you can imagine that was quite awkward. Um, I mean, actually, I have, I have a very similar example. So I went to Catholic all-girls school. Um, and in our final, like the final weeks of the final year, where they were just kind of sort of trying to kill time before we all left. Yeah. Our <laughs> English teacher was like, let's do a conversation exercise. Okay, so hands up if you want to have children um, mm. in the next 10 years. And I was the only person who didn't put my hand up. And it was just <laughs> incredibly awkward. And of course, yeah. you know, based on so many gender stereotypes, I can't imagine that they would, would have asked like a class of boys the same question <laughs> we'll, we'll never know um, um it's it's dealing with these uh societal expectations about what girls what boys should do yeah exactly and sort of kind of obviously we're dealing with sort of the benign end of the spectrum in in girls schools whereas domestic violence shelves really deal with the the very bad end of the spectrum there but mm-hmm. you could argue that these all to some extent flow from the same thing about who has power in society who's expected to behave in what ways what kind of behavior is considered acceptable for one group of people over the other um so these are things we're trying to tackle and of course we could have made it live really easy for ourselves and said okay we're imagining the certification happens in 10 years and by then gender inequality won't exist. But of course that's cheating, right? That's, that's saying that's something that's really deeply embedded still now that we haven't managed to resolve so far will have disappeared by then. So that was never the approach we took. So what we said, we assume things gradually improve because that's historically the trend, mm. but we still probably need to address some of those and how you address those is of course really difficult. And I, I think there's probably no perfect solution. There's certainly no perfect legal solution because like you say, law can't, it's really hard to imagine that law can do all of those things at the same time somehow and in a sort of timely fashion, shall we say. Yeah, and then especially when, you know, there are, there are so many things that crop up, you know, like a pandemic um, that then sort of affect, and we've heard a bit, haven't we, about 
um, the impact of the, the COVID pandemic on, on women's um, professional lives, the caring responsibilities, um, weight, um, gender pay differences. Yeah, and that's so unpredictable, right? And to what, how could Lord really deal with this? Like no one can foresee this is gonna happen or the shift to online working is going to happen suddenly. And it's really funny because we know women have been disproportionately badly affected by the pandemic, but lots of people with physical disabilities have benefited from the pandemic because it made remote working suddenly so possible when it, it wasn't. So there's also the kind of the challenge of what do we do when we have competing needs in some instances or when the needs of one group are served by one thing, but that actually doesn't work for this other group at all. Um, so law kind of has to strike a balance very carefully between those two things. And maybe sometimes that isn't for law to do at all. It's for society to dissolve kind of through other ways but that's quite difficult to do like you need at least i would say even i mean obviously biased as as a law person i would say you need to at least have sort of a minimum threshold of law to say you know this is acceptable and this really isn't acceptable so this is kind of behavior we don't want to see in society but of course we all disagree about what that should look like right like if you ask 10 people in the street they would probably come up with really different things on this yeah yeah but it's it's having something to kind of something that's pinned down which however imperfect you can then act I guess yeah yeah law has a really symbolic value so even when I when mm. I speak head teachers and they said well the law sets a minimum standard but that's still a thing right like it still sets a standard even if we think it's not perfect or we want to do better than that which is perfectly permissible um it, it says certain kinds of behaviors are not acceptable and that is really important uh in any society to have to say yes you cannot discriminate um purely because you want to for no good reason yeah, I, I guess that the decertification question, if you will, or the law question more broadly sort of gets you to think about, well, why is, is and then you can pull out those nuances from there. Yeah, exactly. So that's partially why we did the project like we did. So we're not trying to resolve kind of, we're not trying to propose a law reform proposal for right now, but we're partially doing a future or imaginary proposal because it allows us to pull out all of these kinds of different dimensions that you, of course, wouldn't be able to do in really technical normal law reform, which has to serve a specific political agenda, it has to be passable, you would need to be able to get enough votes for it. Um, it needs to meet really clear technical standards, but we were, I think, more interested in sort of what are all the kind of the reasons behind why things are like this right now and which one of those could we potentially affect to make it like this in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Legal Gender podcast. To find out more, head to Future of Legal Gender kcl.ac.uk and to receive updates follow us on twitter at future gender mm-hmm.